0: This is episode 224 of That Shakespeare Life. Our episode this week is powered by our patrons. Patrons get access to detailed show notes, including diagrams, museum artifacts, portraits, and other visual history content that coordinates with the history you'll hear about today. Get access to these bonuses and other great patrons-only content at patreon.com slash That Shakespeare Life.
1: So pat boats are these sort of broad, shallow dishes that had a spout at one end for pouring a mixture into the mouth. And all of these dishes, these vessels tend to be kind of flat because they're a way of cooling off a mixture that had been warmed up to make sure that it was a safe temperature for the baby to eat.
0: And now, here's Cassidy. Commercial baby formula wouldn't hit the mass market until the 1800s, but Shakespeare's lifetime still had to deal with babies who needed to eat but were unable for a variety of reasons to nurse or drink breast milk. Here this week to help us take a look at baby formula, baby bottles, and the role of wet nurses in Shakespeare's lifetime is our guest and author of multiple articles on the history of baby formula, Carla Savasco. Carla Savasco is a scholar interested in the food, the body, material, culture, gender, and race in early America. She is assistant professor of American studies at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Her first book, Violent Appetites, Hunger in the Early Northeast, was published by Yale University in 2022. You can find out more about Carla and her work, including links to her articles on 16th century infant formula, in the show notes for today's episode. Hello,
1: Carla. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me.
0: What were some of the reasons or situations that we know about where babies in the sixteenth century would need to consume something other than breast milk during their infancy?
1: Well, first of all, there's the problem of maternal mortality, you know, before the modern era. It's something like one in twenty women might have died in childbirth. So from the jump, there are babies who don't have mothers who are alive anymore. There's also even if mom is alive, there's a lot of sort of -of run-of-the-mill breastfeeding problems that might happen on the maternal side, um, which people still might struggle with today. Things like low supply or nipple cracking uh, or mastitis, and those latter two issues are much more dangerous in the early modern period than they are today because there are no antibiotics. So that you know, cracked nipples today are something that could be easily addressed, but in the early modern period might lead to a life threatening infection as as mastitis might. So those were the types of problems that might be faced on the mother's side. But then on the infant side as well, there are infants who um, have a more challenging time with breastfeeding. Babies who are born premature and might have trouble latching or just really sleepy. And other physiological challenges with latching, like having a tongue tie or a cleft palate. So breastfeeding relies on mom having enough milk and being able to get baby to latch on. And sometimes all of those factors didn't line up in the early modern period as today, creating challenges for for infants to be able to have breastfeeding milk.
0: In the 16th century, were wet nurses the first alternative for women who experienced some
1: of these problems? It really depends on people's class background. So wealthy people were more able to employ wet nurses. They would either send their children away to live with the nurse, or the more expensive option was to actually bring the nurse in to live in the family home and so take on you know paying for the nurse's room and board. But also during this time, there might have been other people other than these uh, you know, paid wet nurses or enslaved wet nurses who might have been available. Um, we have to remember that there was not access to modern birth control during this time. People had a lot of ways to try to manage and control their fertility, um, and often they were trying to space births as, as widely as they could. Nevertheless, the majority of married women were spending you know, about two decades of their lives either pregnant or nursing, and so a lot of them were having a baby every two to three years this means that there's a lot of lactating people around during this time period. And so someone who is having trouble breastfeeding their own baby could often turn to this sort of informal community around them of family members or friends or neighbors who would also be nursing. And so that those people could feed their children for them. So these informal community nursing relationships could have sustained some children For poorer people, you know, that's what they would have been turning to is more of these community relationships, or they would have been turning to alternative foods, which we're going to talk about more later.
0: In 1577... Omnibonus Ferrarius, I hope I'm saying that correctly, wrote a treatise on children in which he stressed the importance of a woman nursing her own child and cautioned against using a wet nurse. Carla, obviously, women who were unable to breastfeed may have chosen a wet nurse out of necessity, but were there ever instances of women selecting a wet nurse for convenience or so that they were able to return to their professional or more traditional daily duties faster?
1: So as in our own time, you know, parents in early modern Europe and especially mothers faced a whole lot of scrutiny of their parenting, including issues such as infant feeding. And over the course of the early modern period, wet nursing becomes an increasingly controversial practice because wet nursing is this moment of very intimate contact between, you know, someone from within the family, this this infant, this very impressionable child, and someone from outside of the family. And often wet nurses, as I've already mentioned, were poor you know, from a different class. Um, And once Europe starts colonizing Africa and the Americas, there's also Black and Indigenous wet nurses as well. So scholars have noticed that you know, during this early colonial period is when opposition to wet nursing really picks up because there are early modern European theories about where does race come from? Where does racial difference come from? Early modern Europeans at this moment have an environmental theory of race, meaning that your race is something that is shaped by your environment, by the food that you eat, by the climate that you're in. So for one thing, as Europeans start, you know, going out and colonizing the world, they become very anxious that once they're in these, new environments they too will start to transform into say you know native american or african people so within this logic within this environmental theory of race people start to worry that children of european descent who nurse from a black or indigenous wet nurse are actually going to racially transform as a result of imbibing this breast milk from someone of a different race so two our wealthy European families who employ a wet nurse, you know, a poor wet nurse, someone from another class are worried that their children are going to somehow imbibe the characteristics of this lower class person. So you see guides from this time period that are aimed at wealthy families about how to choose a wet nurse, you know, looking for things like having a pleasant face or a gentle disposition because they're, they're looking for qualities that will be passed along to the baby and they're hoping that they will be positive qualities. There's also starting to be medical recognition that wet nurse children may not survive as well as children who are nursed by their own parent. Sometimes wet nurses, you know, especially if babies are being sent away to a wet nurse, these wet nurses are going to take in a lot more children than they could actually provide with breast milk. So they might be feeding them these alternative foods that are not necessarily as healthy or safe. And breast milk is also designed very specifically by the mother's body for a specific baby For example, we now know that milk is nutritionally different for for, um, male children versus female children. And even in the 17th century, you could see advice to choose a wet nurse who had had a child who is the same sex as the child that you want to be nursed in recognition that boys were thriving better on milk made for boys. So you know, as to the question of why people chose a wet nurse. So yes, sometimes there are poor or enslaved people who need to return to work soon after giving birth. Here, I think we need to really question the language of choice, like choosing a wet nurse, because if you're forced to do something, is it really a choice? So for enslaved people, you know, enslavers... You know, the more enslaved people they owned, the more money they made. And so enslavers wanted enslaved women to go back to work soon after giving birth. And they also wanted enslaved women to keep producing more enslaved babies. So they would take their babies away from them um, so that they could, you know, become pregnant again without the contraceptive effects of lactation and also go back to, you know, producing in the fields, working in the fields, things like that. We can actually see kind of similar dynamics happening among wealthy people as well. There's a lot of stigma that wealthy women are too vain or too lazy to breastfeed. You know, they don't like the way that it changes their bodies or, you know, they won't fit into, you know, fashionable clothing anymore. But the actual situation was often much more complicated than that. Again, there's an understanding in this period that lactation has a contraceptive effect. It's by no means foolproof, but it is one of the methods that people in this era um, use to extend the intervals between births and also in early modern england and in other cultures there were often taboos against lactating people having sex because of again this fear that it would impact the baby negatively in some way the nursing infant so wealthy men who wanted their wives to keep popping out babies and producing you know more heirs for an aristocratic family would want to to give that baby to a wet nurse so that they could get back to business and keep producing more babies and this meant that wealthy women often had shorter intervals be- between births than did poorer people and sometimes had um, worse infant mortality um, because of this use of wet nurses. So again, when w- there's, there's a lot of stigma around you know, the choice to use a wet nurse in this period. But when you go and unpack the situations in which people were making choices, it wasn't necessarily that they had full control over how they were feeding their infant.
0: So were there women who worked as a wet nurse professionally as their job in the 16th century?
1: So I think on the one hand, um, yes, there were, right? Even today, there are some people who struggle to produce enough breast milk. And then there are other people who produce way too much breast milk, more than enough. So you have to assume that some people who fell in that latter category, you know, along the spectrum of, of natural variation and how much milk people produce, some people who produce a lot of milk would have made good wet nurses, right? Because there was plenty to go around. But we also have to think about that people wound up being wet nurses sometimes because of very tragic or difficult circumstances. Um, when you look at new- newspaper advertisements for, for people wanting to be hired as wet nurses, a lot of them mention that their infant died so that the mother has this available breast milk and that the, you know, the, the nurse infant is not going to have to compete with their own child. So these are poor women who have lost a child and they also need money. So they're making money by selling that milk, but thinking about how traumatic that situation would have been for people who are placed in that position.
0: So what about the recipes for artificial breast milk and homemade infant formula? You alluded earlier to a wet nurse that had a lot of babies to care for. They might supplement with something other than breast milk. What what were some of the contents of this artificial breast milk that was being given to babies?
1: So in early modern Europe, you see two main types of baby food that they're giving to to infants, um, especially infants who can't have breast milk. So pap is a combination of some sort of animal milk, sometimes goat's milk, because there's a recognition that it's easier to digest for some babies than is cow's milk. They're going to mix that with starch, something like breadcrumbs or flour, um, and usually add in sugar because breast milk is sweeter than than most animal milks. Panada is another another version of this food. Um, It's basically the same thing but with broth. So both of these are very soft, liquidy foods. They have protein, they have fat, they have carbohydrates, they have hydration. The problem with these foods is that they're not necessarily nutritionally complete or even digestible for the baby. So until six months, baby stomachs aren't necessarily able to digest things like cow's milk. They have to develop to that point. And worse, you know, when we're talking about the 16th century, we're talking about an era long before modern food safety standards. So if baby food isn't cooked, um, isn't brought to a boil, or if it isn't stored properly, it's going to get contaminated with bacteria, right? There's nothing but raw milk in this era. There's no pasteurization. And, you know, the utensils or vessels that were used to store these foods might also be contaminated with bacteria. Or they're made of pewter or other materials that might contain lead, which we know isn't good for babies. So babies who are fed these alternative foods have a tendency to fail to grow, failure to thrive, or they get chronic diarrhea, um, which is very, very dangerous for babies. So there's a recognition that spoon-fed babies tend to die at an astronomically higher rate than breastfed babies do in this era. Um, And There's also a recognition that summer is a particularly dangerous time for babies because of the hotter temperatures and the increased risk of foodborne illness that faces babies who are fed foods other than breast milk. So in Shakespeare's time, there is not a safe, nutritionally complete alternative to breastfeeding um, like we have now in the form of infant formula. So babies who had to feed their, their babies alternative foods in Shakespeare's time were really keenly aware that they were taking a risk that their baby would get very sick. And so they were going to be doing this only when they had no other options and couldn't get breast milk some other way.
0: Well, what about you mentioned spoon fed babies versus breast fed babies? How were they getting the babies to eat the formula? Was there something like a sixteenth century baby bottle, or what what were the infant apparatus for getting the artificial breast milk into the child
1: so there's a variety of vessels when you go look at museum collections that were used to feed both sick people, actually invalids, and also babies in the early modern period. So pap boats are these sort of broad, shallow dishes that had a spout at one end for pouring a mixture into the mouth. And all of these dishes, these vessels tend to be kind of flat because they're a way of cooling off a mixture that had been warmed up to make sure that it was a safe temperature for the baby to eat. Over time, this starts to evolve into mass-produced ceramic bottles uh, by the 18th century century. There's other vessels that look more like pitchers. By the 18th century, you see vessels that are called bubby pots, which kind of look like teapots, but instead of a spout, they have what looks like a nipple at the end. And for people who weren't wealthy enough to be able to afford, you know, ceramic or, or metal feeding utensils, they'd be using something like cow's horns with a hole put in the pointy end. And also you can see um, in, in uh, visual culture and visual representations of feeding infants that people are using spoons to feed infants as well.
0: In that same 1577 book by Omnibus Ferrarius, he includes an image of an early breast pump. Carla, were these kinds of pumps widely used by mothers in the 16th century?
1: Before the advent of modern refrigeration and the development of sort of modern mechanized pumps, pumping isn't a very accessible or practical option for most people. Pumps are not really widely available. Um, And even if you did have access to some sort of pump, they were usually pretty rudimentary. They were kind of like suction powered. Um, And if you could pump breast milk, you couldn't really store it. There's no way to refrigerate it. My guess is that people were using those pumps more often, you know, sort of like self-expressing milk to drain their breasts for other reasons because they had too much milk because they had clogged ducts, something like that. And in early modern Europe, people were also afraid of giving babies colostrum or the first milk that's produced um, when the mother's milk first comes in, because it looks so different than, than the breast milk that comes afterwards. So breast milk is thinner and it's white or yellow in color, whereas colostrum is thick and much darker and it can be like black or green or blue. It's really weird looking. And so early modern Europeans were concerned that colostrum would somehow be harmful to the newborn. We now know that colostrum is actually really highly concentrated with beneficial antibodies and seen for a re- as a really good thing for the for the newborn to have. But in the early modern period people were, were more concerned that colostrum was not suitable for newborns. So we find accounts of people, you know, rather than, than pumping out the colostrum, ha- people having older toddlers or even like I'm not joking puppies to suck out the colostrum. Um, The idea being that puppies or older toddlers are less delicate than the newborn and can handle this this strange substance of the colostrum.
0: I'm sorry, my brain can't even wrap (laughs) around that comment. I'm trying to think of a segue there and I'm like, okay. It's super,
1: it's super wild. There's moments where you're just like, what, what were they thinking? You know? And so (laughs)
0: it's crazy. It's like, wow, I can't even imagine that being the the standard thought there. But I mean, it does make sense that they would freak out about the colostrum being so different looking, but I, I would think they would just. I I don't know, that wouldn't have been the solution I came up with. So I'm, (laughs) I'm shocked there. But so I mean, I guess you've definitely outlined for us that there's a lot to learn and explore in the area of, of breast milk and nursing and artificial formula from the 16th century in Shakespeare's lifetime, which brings me to what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend that we use to explore this topic further?
1: So um, I always recommend the history of medicine blog, Nursing Clio, uh, which is completely open access and has great material on infant feeding, but also if you're interested in gender and the history of medicine more broadly covering all time periods in all areas of the world. And then important scholars of the history of infant feeding and wet nursing. Um, I'm just going to list a bunch of names. Marissa Rhodes, who's written a lot about wet nursing. Stephanie Jones Rogers, who's written about slavery and wet nursing in particular. Um, So have Emily West and R.J. Knight written about the history of slavery. Some oldies but goodies, Valerie Fildes and Janet Golden, who have both written about the history of wet nursing. Nora Doyle has written about the history of breastfeeding, particularly in early America. And Paula Treckle and Ruth Perry have written articles, um, older articles that are about the relationship between sort of anti-wet nursing campaigns and colonization. So all of these scholars have all published books or articles on these subjects, um, and any of them would be a really interesting way to jump into this topic.
0: Those are excellent resources. We will link to several of these, including to Carla Savasco's work on infants and breastfeeding in the 16th century, which you can read. So make sure you hang on for the link to the show notes to explore all of these resources. Now, Carla, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those.
1: It would probably be the works of MFK Fisher, who is a mid-20th century food writer, who was someone who followed their appet- her appetites wherever they took her in a way that was uh, really unusual for someone of her time and is really seen as one of the first modern food writers. So there's always something more to discover in her work. I
0: think you'd be well set up on your deserted island with that selection. <laughs> so what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
1: So I'm working on a book called Feeding Children in Early America, which is about what infants and children ate before 1900. So I'll be talking about uh, not just what babies ate, but also what children ate as well. So I'm looking forward to continuing to research and write about this subject.
0: Thank you so much, Carla Savasco, for being here this week and taking us through the history of infant formula in the 16th century and what life was like for very new babies in Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a really exciting conversation, and I thank you for being here. Thank you. If you enjoyed our show today, be sure to let us know by leaving us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. Our show is equipped with show notes on our website that contain links to more information on Carla Savasco and her work into 16th century infant formula. You'll also be able to find links to the books and resources she recommends for you to use when you want to learn more about today's topic. You can find all of these things completely free at CassidyCash.com slash episode 224. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 224. For patrons of our show, this website is also where you will access the history extras for today's episode. You can visit com slash episode 224 and click on the Patreon button to log in and expand the bonuses right from the show notes page. Again, that's CassidyCash.com slash episode 224. Just like William Shakespeare, our show is supported by our patrons, and they get pretty awesome extras for helping us produce the show. Along with detailed show notes for each episode that lets you access in-depth research for the topics that we cover patrons also get bonus interviews not available on the podcast along with special patrons only content including exclusive documentaries produced by us here at that shakespeare life as well as from some partnering historical organizations we also have three-minute animated plays virtual tours and so much more explore all the benefits and sign up today at patreon.com slash that shakespeare life that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life.